The history of Paris comes alive when you get to know the characters that made their mark on the city over the centuries. And you could just peer through one window in one building in different centuries and construct a whole history in miniature of the city. Graham Robb helps us see Paris through the eyes of its most influential residents. In Italy, there's a saying about the people who live in the three regions in the middle of the country. Very sarcastic Tuscany people, very solid and slow Umbrian people, and very enjoying life people from Lazio. And find a souvenir that's uniquely you by sourcing ingredients around the world to create your own perfect perfume. I mean, a good scent should never shout at you. It should be subtle. In the wake of somebody leaving, you will smell a slight cloud of their scent and their presence. Come along as we follow the scent trail, explore the heart of Italy, and meet some famous Parisians. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You could travel the world to find just the right ingredients to create your own special perfume. We'll hear in a bit from a woman who did just that. And while Tuscany may be the most romanticized region of Italy, a vintner from neighboring Umbria suggests there's a lot more to the heart of Italy that you should explore. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. A listener in Maryland once suggested that I interview a British author who wrote a groundbreaking book called The Discovery of France after bicycling around the country. Eventually, we noticed that Graham Robb kept writing highly praised books about France, about the early Celts, and about noteworthy characters in the history of Paris. Graham Robb joins us now to introduce us to some of Paris's most notable characters that he profiles in his book, Parisians. Hey, Graham. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. Now, you wrote a book about Paris, and, and rather than a chronology, you're kind of telling the story of Paris with a series of uh, stories about people, not presidents and great generals, but adulterers, poets, spies, prostitutes, revolutionaries. Why do we learn a lot about Paris by looking at these kind of characters? Because, the, like any city, Paris is the people who live in it. And of course, you can write a history of the infrastructure that makes up the city, its buildings and street lighting and drains and the metro and so on. Hmm. But I thought this was a good way of writing a kind of abbreviated history that would hmm. give you a sense of what it was to live in Paris in a particular place and at a particular time. And really, it was kind of homage to, to Paris to show that every great city generates countless stories, and you could just peer through one window in one building in different centuries and construct a a whole history in miniature of the city. Tell us the story of one quirky Parisian that'll give us a, a better appreciation of the city's true personality. Well, the person that I thought the most revealing in some ways was the man who has been almost completely forgotten who saved the entire left bank of Paris from sinking into the abyss. He was a man who went down into the old quarries that had been dug out of the hill on the left bank of Paris since before the Romans, and which had been propped up by the slender pillars of limestone that had been left there. And successive generations would dig down below those pillars until the whole thing was a honeycomb. And there had been a few subsidences in the the streets, but no one had actually gone and explored this underworld. And he went down and realized that half of Paris was on the point of collapsing. And he was the man who was considered slightly mad, who constructed a kind of inverted cathedral under the left bank of Paris, 
and made this, this beautiful arched monument. It's far more beautiful than it needed to be to support the left bank and really became the man who saved Paris. The west bank of Paris is honeycombed with quarries, and this guy recognized yep. that it was actually in danger, so he built an arch to support it, to save the city? Yes, he wrote a report, and he was appointed by the king and given all the money and, and labor that he needed and built a masterpiece. He's a hero. Underground. He's a hero yep. with a sense of style. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> see, now that's great. Does that have something to do with Plaster of Paris? We hear about Plaster of Paris. Yes, there were also Plaster of Paris mines in the north, and there was also a subsidence problem in the north. But yes, a lot of it was for that. I used to stay in a hotel on Place Blanche, and I understand it means the white place and or the white square, and it was just called that oh, because yes. Plaster of Paris was quarried there and always sloppily loaded under trucks, and the square was always white. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I'm just fascinated by underground Paris because, of course, a lot of us go to the, um, the catacombs. They unearthed all the cemeteries because it was considered uh, not hygienic uh, and uh, back in, I think, the 19th, early 19th century. And they just happened to have pre-quarries dug underneath the streets. So there's millions of skeletons lined up on those quarries. So that was handy if you're, if you're uh, vacating cemeteries. Yes, and it was the same man who had the idea of constructing the, the catacombs in oh, that okay. way, using human bones. Ah, because they're beautifully artistically done also. It's one of the most fascinating hikes you can take, is, especially on a hot day, is in the cool catacombs under the city, marveling at, you know, literally thousands and thousands of skulls beautifully stacked, if you're into that. <laughs> yes, and actually his bones are in there too now. Because oh, is that right? Because the cemetery he was buried in was oh. later removed to the catacombs. So he's still helping to keep Paris up. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about Paris, and we're talking with Graham Robb, and his book is called Parisians, An Adventure History of Paris. Graham, I was just watching Les Miserables, and I felt that we owe, free people everywhere, owe a debt of gratitude, really, to the uh, early freedom fighters in Paris that are celebrated in Les Miserables. And and you write that the historic image of, of Parisians are disturbers of the peace in a great way. Do you get a sense when you, when you think of the people of Paris that freedom came from Paris in a certain way? <laughs> I suppose it, the idea of political freedom in France, I suppose you could say, came from Paris as the seat of government and the seat of revolution. And there is a pattern that suggests that revolutions in France have to begin in Paris. Now, there were uprisings in other parts of France, but national revolutions, of which there are many, it's not just the French Revolution, did tend to spread from Paris to the provinces. And the old regime was so, so solid. And for people to actually break that up, to me, that was quite heroic. And it it didn't happen easy. And uh, a lot of countries don't have it today. But there were Parisians that helped start that for Western civilization. Yes. And they, in a sense, sold it to other countries because Mm -hmm. it was very, like a lot of political events in France, it was very highly intellectualized from the very beginning. Voltaire and Rousseau, and, you know, they had theorists of revolution who were able to explain the chaos or try to explain the chaos that was going on. And I suppose what they also created was a state of more or less permanent revolution because all mm-hmm. through the 19th century, at almost regular intervals after the French Revolution, there were many other national revolutions and coups d'etat that aren't talked about as much and mm. certainly aren't always celebrated in the same way. Wow. So the, the sort of the tyranny of the old regime was like a little disease that kept coming back and it wasn't finally squashed and it had to be hit again and again by those revolutions that were sort of starting from the streets of Paris where they set up the barricades and made history. 
One reviewer suggested that Graham Robb's bestseller, Parisians, an adventure history of Paris, has accomplished the feat of reintroducing France to itself. Graham's research earned him high praise from the French government, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Graham's also written biographies of French literary giants Balzac, Rimbaud, and Victor Hugo. And he's just released France, an adventure history. You'll find links to Graham's earlier Travel with Rick Steves interviews at ricksteves.com slash radio. Very quickly, Graham, I'm going to list people who we associate with Paris, and if you can just quickly tell me as a traveler what impact they had on Paris. Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette, her impact on Paris was largely imaginary because people didn't really know her, but she did become a hated figure. She was one of the people that represented the Ancien Régime and, of course, she wasn't French. She was a foreigner, so I think that added That's to That's right. Her. She was married into the family but happened to be there at the wrong time and lost her head. How about Baron Haussmann? Baron Haussmann probably had a greater effect on Paris than anyone's ever had on any city, unless you count bombing raids. Mm. He completely transformed Paris in the mid-19th century into a kind of tourist destination. It's one of the earliest examples of a city in Europe turning its centre into a kind of museum piece so that people who included some of Baron Haussmann's rich friends were forced to move further out, out of the centre of Paris. So the uniform uh, skyline, the beautiful facades, the grand boulevards, we can thank Baron Haussmann from the middle of the 1800s. Yes, a lot of that is his work. It was very carefully planned and then mm, uh, carefully carried out over less than 20 years. Okay, Charles de Gaulle. His real importance is obvious in the war and then later as president of France. But he also plays a very symbolic role. And you think of Charles de Gaulle returning at the Libération at the end of the Second World War, marching down the Champs-Élysées and attending a ceremony at Notre-Dame de Paris. And he really had the knack of incarnating uh, an almost mythical figure and presenting himself ah. as a kind of incarnation of French history, all centered in Paris. I love that. And when you mention that, I think my favorite statue in Paris might be the, the statue of Charles de Gaulle himself striding down the Champs-Élysées on that great day when, when the war was over. Yes. There's also the pull of the big city. And I understand in much of France, even if it's a proud uh, region with a long history, there's people, young generation, moving into the big cities to find jobs, and it's almost leaving small towns depopulated to the point where the government is subsidizing young people who would agree to stay and, and run the little shop and, and keep the city basically uh, vibrant enough to, uh, to stay alive. Did you encounter that in your travels? Yes, you do see that a lot. Some villages and even small towns are partly boarded up, and you can see houses just being allowed to crumble. And very often, if the houses have been restored... Uh, it's because English people, especially people from the south of England, have mm. gone and, and bought a house. And you would think that the French in some parts would be much more hostile to, a, to the old traditional enemy, England. Mm. Uh, but often they're, they're glad that at least someone has come to, to keep the place up. Farms are getting bigger and bigger. They're bought up by big concerns. It's harder and harder to make a living. And the high-speed train is particular thorn in, in the flesh of a lot of people in rural parts of France because they feel it's allowing everyone to bypass their region and is sucking all the life out of the That's province. That's another interesting development. You've got this bullet trains that make the Riviera and the coast of Normandy just an easy day trip distance from London. You've got the economy of scale that's threatening small farms. 
and you've got uh, English people coming in for a charming little spot where they can get their foie gras. Uh, it's just it's, yeah. it's an amazing puzzle, isn't it? And when you tour it by bike, maybe the pieces of the puzzle come together a little better. Yes, I think they do. Graham, let's finish just with one piece of advice from you for any of us visiting Paris to best appreciate that great city. The most important thing to do in Paris is to walk across it. And it's actually, central Paris is a very small place. You can easily walk across it twice from west to east and north to south in a single day. And that way you'll discover a huge amount about Paris, even more than you will than if you tour the sites on a, an open deck bus. I love that advice. And it's interesting because I've been going there for 30 years and my sister was visiting. Um, I decided we're not going to go sightseeing. We're just going to take a walk straight across through neighborhoods I'd never been. And it was one of the most rewarding half days I've had in Paris. And it was places that were not famous. It was just Paris. Graham Robb, author of Parisians and Adventure History of Paris. Merci beaucoup for a little help on understanding what I consider the capital of Europe. You're very welcome, Rick. It's my pleasure. An insider look at the heart of Italy and the magic of bespoke fragrances. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Ask any Italian where they come from, and chances are they'll start with what's special about their hometown, and maybe the region it's in. The Italy we know of today was only united in 1861, after centuries of being a collection of city-states and independent regions dating back to the Etruscans and the Roman Empire. But let's set our focus on the region of hillside villages and vineyards in the center of Italy the places that stoke our fantasies about breaking away to the Italian countryside. You'll have heard of Tuscany. It's a big administrative region that includes the Renaissance cities of Florence and Siena. Its neighbor, Umbria, features such towns as Assisi and Orvieto. And nearby Lazio, it's dominated by the big capital, Rome. Cecilia Botai was born in Tuscany. Raised at her family's winery estate in Umbria, which she still manages and maintains an apartment in Rome. She's been a tour guide in these regions for years and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to help you enjoy the heart of Italy. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Cecilia, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Cecilia, first of all, when you talk about the states of Italy, is it states or regions or provinces or what do you say? We call them regions, but when you say Italy, I think that is... Uh quite recent. What I like to call my country is the United States of Italy, because actually we are not unified, mentally speaking, traditionally speaking, but we get united when we go abroad. There we are Italians. When we are in Italy, we are from Umbria, from Florence, and even within the regions, there is a big competition what is best there's a famous saying, I mean, when, when Italy was finally united, all these disparate states and regions and little kingdoms, 1870 or whatever, when Italy was finally united, we've created Italy, but now we have to create Italians. And 145 years later, they're still working on it. Yes, absolutely. So if you're talking about Umbria, Tuscany, and Lazio, you've got a connection with all three of these regions. How would you distinguish these three regions of Italy? I would say that Tuscany is probably what we know as the most sophisticated one. Umbria is, I would call it, the most genuine and lives in the shadows of Tuscany. And Lazio is uh, still living in the shadow in some parts, except for Rome, which is well known, and still very genuine. 
But even the personality of the people is very different because we have a too strong and long history not to affect our personalities and traditions and ways of living. Also, the, the, the country, the land, is made in a way that makes us live in a certain way. Think of Umbria. We have many places called Gualdo something, Gualdo Tadino, Gualdo Cataneo. It comes from Wald, which is a German word that means valley. Ah. So in the past, when you didn't have roads, if you had to cross a valley, you wouldn't do it. So you were quite isolated. So this is why they have a more... Uh, sort of rustic and, rustic, and isolated I would, feeling. More rustic is not the right word. More isolated personality. Okay. Also, Umbria is very strong in Etruscan tradition. The Umbrians are half Etruscans. Now, Umbria is landlocked, right? So is there yes. no, there's no coastal area. So you're a little more isolated that way and a little more of the... Absolutely. Of... It's called the Green Heart of Italy. Okay. Now, is there? I understand there's a historical border there too because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought like Tuscany was historically part of the uh, Holy Roman Empire and Umbria was part of the Vatican States? Uh, absolutely, yes. Part of Umbria was added to Italy later because the unification of Italy is 1861 and 10 years later the Vatican States added to Italy, ah. to the United States of Italy. So this is why we have also differences. Is there a proverb or some folk wisdom that illustrates the differences between the people in Tuscany, Umbria and Lazio? Well, absolutely. You know, in Italy we speak with proverbs, especially in the, in the center and in Naples. One that I like very much from Tuscany says in Italian, le querce non fanno limoni, an oak tree can't make a lemon. We use it when you have someone who's not very smart and you can't expect the person to do something smart. So you say, you know, an oak tree can't make a lemon. This is because the Tuscany people are very sarcastic. Think of the Dante and the Divine Comedy. So we say you can't get blood out of a turnip and you say an oak tree, tree can't you cannot make, make a, lemon. a lemon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in Umbria. Umbria is people are more quiet. It's like if you refer to people like cars, it's diesel people. So they do everything very solid but slowly, not very <laughs> quick. So it says that l'ottimo è il nemico del buono. The excellent is the biggest enemy of the good. So when you get something well done or something good, don't stress yourself to get more. Sometimes so, so you destroy. So good enough is good enough. Yeah. And the other one is from Lazio. And you know that people in Lazio are very much influenced by their Roman history. And the Romans liked to enjoy life. And it says, Chi ha un comodo e non se ne serve, non trova un confessore che la solve. The translation would be, Who has something nice, comfy, enjoyable, and does not use it, will never be forgiven by a confessor. Because if you have something nice given by heaven, use it and enjoy life. This tells the personality of the people. Very sarcastic Tuscany people, very solid and slow Umbrian people, and very enjoying life people from Lazio. So, enjoying life but still religious. Yes, but enjoying life. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are speaking with Cecilia Botai as we do every week for one hour. We're exploring other parts of the world and gaining an insight into different cultures. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Alice is calling in from Carlsbad in California. Alice, do you have a comment for Cecilia? Well, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in um, Italy, and uh, we really liked Umbria. It's so green and beautiful. We traveled to Lago Trasimeno and Panicale and Gubbio and 
Todi and Norcia. Norcia is kind of the port capital, and that's an interesting place. But uh, we really enjoy Umbria and Lazio. I'm getting some thumbs up from uh, Cecilia on the places you liked. <laughs> Cecilia, if you are thinking of some special things to be sure to see and do in Umbria, what are the top four or five attractions? Well, Assisi is a must, because when we think of Assisi, we think of art mm-hmm. and a kind of religion that changed the mentality of the people, so that's important. Okay. Uh, another one is Castelluccio di Norcia. It's a place that is very remote, and it's the headquarter for hand later in the entire uh, Europe. Hand what? Hand later. Delta Plano is kind of sports. Oh, oh hang gliders. Hang gliders, oh, sorry. really? Now this is Norcia, N-O-R-C-I-A. Castelluccio di Norcia. It's 10 miles north of Norcia, and it's fantastic. So you should do that. Orvieto, absolutely. You have to do it. The cathedral with the frescoes in the basilica, which is fabulous. Mm. And if we're talking about close to Umbria, but not in Umbria, Civita di Bagnoregio. This that is, is something that's we love. a must. It's just over the border in Lazio. Over the Civita border. And yeah. I, I should mention, Cecilia Botai has a beautiful family farm where they make some beautiful Orvieto Classico wine in a home that has ancient cellars underneath that have been storing wine for centuries. And we'll leave Cecilia's uh, information in our website about this show. Ellis, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. And Mike's on the line in Johns Creek, Georgia. Mike, thanks for your call. Sure. I have a question. Uh, my wife and I would like to spend a week in the countryside in Italy somewhere. It sounds like Tuscany or uh, Umbria or Lazio would all be good choices. And we'd like to know, we'd like to stay a, a week maybe in two cities or towns and then kind of drive out and see things and come back, but basically have a headquarters so we don't have to move every day and can kind of get a feel for the town and the people and so forth. So you're wondering what a good home base is for touring yes. Umbria? In Umbria or uh, Tuscany. Because those are quite small areas, and uh, the distances, it takes a while because the roads are windy and there's a lot of hill towns. But if you have a rental car and stay in an agriturismo, you have a world of opportunities, and there are some great agriturismos, and then you can explore all these beautiful uh, hill towns and vineyards and so on. Cecilia, any ideas on that? Well, you know, the, the main thing is that there are many nice places. You could probably look for a place that is close to a highway because you can go very easily from one place to another, but not too close because you want to have the feeling of the place. Or a hill town that could be either Orvieto or Todi, even Perugia, that is less famous, but it's still a very important city in Umbria, has good connections, has lots to see, and you can go easily to Toscana from there or to the heart of Umbria. So it's just a matter of how you feel like being surrounded by the green or by a smaller city. It's up to you. And the nice thing is, Mike, to remember is that if you have that rental car, really, it's one place I would highly recommend the rental car because driving is easy. You've got the, the cypress trees and the rolling hills and sparse traffic when you, when you stay away from the big cities and frustrating public transportation when you want to get from little town to little town. So make a home base. Enjoy an agriturismo. Remember, an agriturismo is a working farm that rents out rooms to travelers. It can't be called an agriturismo unless it's actually a working farm. And it gives you a very good salt-of-the-earth intimacy with the traditional culture there. Great. What would be good months to visit? Well, I would do the off-season. So if you do the second half of October or you do March, that is already very good to me. It's not never too cold there. And you get real the real feeling, the real soul of this region. So... That is my personal recommendation. And it can be uncomfortably hot in the middle of the summer. If so. you come July, you can really be in a 
like a spa outside where they make you <laughs> do the Turkish bath. So don't do, we don't have that much air conditioning system in Italy as you have in the States. There you go, Mike. Excellent. Thank you very much. Happy travels. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Cecilia Bottai about three regions of Italy, Tuscany, Umbria, and Lazio. Robert is on the line from Glenfield in Illinois. Robert, thanks for your call. Yes, good to talk to you, Rick. Uh, I, I had a question about uh, tips on navigating the back roads. Uh, uh, there aren't as many road signs in uh, Italy, especially once you get off the autostrada as there are in the States. And I've also found that my my Garmin gets totally confused most of the time in, uh, in Italy, and I was wondering what recommendations uh, you might have. Well, uh, just let's say that Italy is famous for many things, art, food, not so much for organization. So this is a way of training people not to get lost, getting lost. That means you get lost, you enjoy the landscapes. So, uh, so you're saying you're going to get lost, just enjoy it? Uh, <laughs> Basically, if you put into the navigation system the name of my family's winery, you get to my brother's home. We still don't know why. It's in the winery, but it's not on the main... So uh, this is built into the GPS systems where it's really not very good for this part of, of Europe for some reason, huh? Yeah. Uh, so buy, buy a good map and rely on the map? You buy a good map, rely on the map. Hmm. I, I agree with you that indication is not that strong in Italy, but enjoy it. That, that's all I can say. So GPS is a little behind the times in this part of Europe, I guess, Robert. Okay, thank you. There are good maps, and uh, as Cecilia said, this is a good chance. If you've got the mobility of a car, it's a great thing to, to actually find yourself in little towns that have never seen a tourist. Or ask the people. Or, I know that in Italy, we mostly speak with hands. So if, if they don't speak English, but you tell them, give them the name of the place where you want to go or the town you want to reach, they will just explain you using the hands, and I promise, 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 you'll make it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Umbria, we're talking about Lazio, and we're talking a little bit about Tuscany. These are the regions between Florence and Rome, basically. We're joined by Cecilia Botai. Cecilia, when you think about Lazio, Lazio, of course, it's Rome, but if you want to get out of Lazio, it's famous for Etruscan sites. What are a couple of Etruscan sites that you could see in Lazio? For sure, the most important one is Tarquinia, where you have a, a, we call it cemetery, but it's a necropolis that is just fabulous. So a necropolis. This necropolis. is a, a city of the dead. And these the are city of incredible. The dead. And people need to remember the Etruscans were thriving in this part of Italy 500 years before Christ. Even even before Even then. before that. Yeah. Orvieto has an amazing necropolis. It and has. Uh, So if you're just going to go to Orvieto and you want to get a dose of this Etruscan uh, cemetery magnificence, go to the uh, necropolis at the base of the hills of Orvieto. But the very best, the most famous, Tarquinia. Also, uh, Cerveteri, what is it? Cerveteri. It's another very beautiful one. Uh, the one in Tarquinia has frescoed tombs. And if you look at the wines from uh, Tenuta Levelette, one of the labels has a fresco that comes from a tomb in Tarquinia. I didn't know that. That's, that's your family winery, Tenuta La Veletta. And you, you use uh, the Etruscan 500 BC frescoes from Tarquinia on your label. On one label, yes, on, on one of Whoa. the wines. Now, if you side trip from Rome into Lazio, of course you've got Tivoli, the sort of uh, playground of Emperor Hadrian. Yes. The Villa d'Esta, which is all of the fanciful fountains. You've got the Pope's uh, little escape. Where does the Pope go when he wants a break from Rome? 
uh, nowadays or in the past? You mean Castel, Gand- Castel Gandolfo? Gandolfo. Is that interesting for tourists or do you need to be a cardinal to enjoy Castel Gandolfo? No, it's interesting. It's beautiful. Uh, probably not the place where I would go because it's not that uh, big. Uh-huh. But there are other places I would visit if I would like to have an escape, like Viterbo. Oh, that yeah. used to be a Pope's headquarter. And it's a city that is surrounded by walls that if you drive around them, you still have the impression there is a horse coming from the walls because it's so well kept. This medieval is just fantastic. Viterbo, V-I-T-E-R-B-O, I believe. And if you're cruising the Mediterranean and your ship docks in Civitavecchia, that's just a short train ride away from Rome. And from Civitavecchia also, you can pick up a rental car and explore Lazio. Absolutely. You can also go see the gardens of Filalante that are very, very interesting to see. Toscan Garden, but in Lazio. And even this part of the country has remained very genuine. That is important. Cecilia Botai and I have been friends for decades, and she's helping us better appreciate the neighboring regions of central Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Cecilia works as a tour guide and divides her days between living in Rome and managing her family's hilltop winery and guest house in the countryside of Umbria, near the town of Orvieto, which is not far from the border with Lazio. It's called Tenuta Le Villette. We have web links with this week's show on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Today's interviews were recorded before the pandemic. And Cecilia, uh, apart from talking about your family's wine, if you're thinking about wine in Tuscany or Umbria or Lazio, tell us three wines, one for each region, that would be interesting for us to have on our list when we're traveling. Well, uh, maybe you could have the Sagrantino di Montefalco, that is Umbria. Uh, You could have also the Nobile di Montepulciano, which is Tuscany. And uh, in Lazio, well, there is the Est, Est, Est from Montefiascone. Okay, Est, Est, Est. That's a fun one to remember, and that's from the, the region around Rome. We all know Brunello di Montalcino, and you know, when you have a famous name, you can charge a lot of extra money for it, but the Nobile di Montalcino, that's a better value, I think, for the same... Nobile di Montepulciano is a better value, and when we talk about wines, uh, I always insist on that with the people. And then when I'm in Umbria, I love the Sagrantino. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just the style of the wine that makes it good, it's who makes the wine that is important. But these three are quite important in the tradition of the country. Typical of those regions. Typical of those regions, good yeah. Good memories. Cecilia Botai, thank you so much for reminding us so vividly that there's more to Italy than just our generic Italian images, but that every region has its own personality. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this country. And remember, whenever you will travel to Italy, you are traveling into the United States of Italy. Mille grazie, and buon viaggio per tutti. Grazie. There's a small Italian hill town in Lazio that has a reputation for being a bit eccentric. It attracts artists and bohemians and has been home to one very distinctive religious relic that went missing a few years ago. We'll hear about how one travel writer dived into the mystery the Vatican would rather not talk about. You'll hear about that next week on Travel with Rick Steves. Can you smell that? There's a wonderful aroma in the air as Celia Littleton describes her search from France and Italy to Morocco, Turkey, India, Sri Lanka, Yemen, and Socotra. That's the island of dragon's blood. All to source just the right ingredients to compose her own bespoke personal perfume. She explains next on Travel with Rick Steves.
Celia Littleton has a souvenir from her travels that no one else in the world will ever own. She scoured the world for just the right mix of ingredients to compose her own perfect personal perfume. Her search took her to where they even know how to turn the secretion of sperm whales into one of the world's most sought-after aphrodisiacs. Celia joins us now from the Travel with Rick Steves archives to tell us about the magic that went into her sensory adventures, which she recounts in her book, The Scent Trail. Celia, welcome. Hi, hello. Celia, very briefly, explain the plot of the book. You, you travel, you learn, you collect, you come home, you cook, you make your bespoke scent. Give us a quick rundown on that, please. It's actually part travel log, part history of perfume. I really wanted to describe the journey from field to the bottle and all the processes that flowers or resins or leaves go through that go into perfumes. But I realised in order for the book to have structure, I had to have a bespoke scent, which is like a tailor-made scent, and that each ingredient that went into that perfume would represent a chapter and my search for that particular ingredient So you set out and literally traveled around the world. Tell us about your quest. Some of them, you know, I chose admittedly because they had an interesting journey within them. For instance, nutmeg is a wonderful ingredient for perfume. And the story behind nutmeg is fascinating because it's actually the birth of New York. Because when the Dutch and the British were fighting over the nutmeg trees which were growing on the island of Run in the Banda archipelago in the East Indies, a war waged between them because nutmeg was such an expensive spice and so sought after in the 17th century that they actually swapped a valueless piece of land called New Amsterdam with the Dutch and the British had New York and the currency was nutmeg. Now, I've read that people think it's an aphrodisiac or nutmeg can make you high. What made it so valuable? Because it had lots of healing powers It was said, indeed, to be a bit of an aphrodisiac. The people used to carry their own personalised nutmeg graters. And, in fact, Charles Dickens had his own monogrammed nutmeg grater. And it was just considered a a, a wonderful luxury, like pineapples were then. Does it make you high? Uh, I did try it, and yes, it does make you a bit high. I tried it with a few spoonfuls of brandy, and it certainly does make you slightly trippy, so, but I didn't want to go too far. So conceivably, Charles Dickens could have enjoyed his nutmeg and had his own grinder because it made him high. It, indeed, it could have. Wow. Take me on the boat just offshore in Yemen, in the land of yes. frankincense and myrrh. Tell me about that. Well, that was the last chapter and the most, in a way, magical and most adventurous. And in fact, when we set out for the Yemen, the foreign office had said it's advisable not to go because you could get kidnapped. Uh, Eventually we got to this wonderful island of Socotra where one-third of its flora and fauna is unique to the island. And it really did have all the promise of what the ancients had written about it, that it had this unearthly smell of virgin forests of frankincense and myrrh. And um, I also went in search of this, the most mysterious of agents in perfume called ambergris which actually comes from, it's a byproduct of the whale. And I went out with the fishermen on Socotra, rowing in search of ambergris. In the book, anyway, in the chapter, it tells how eventually I found it. And I still have it 
what's the shelf life of that? Does it over time become worthless or does it get better? Well, that's a, a very, very good, clever question. It actually, the shelf life is hundreds and hundreds of years. Even if you put a little bit of ambergris on a letter, that'll last 45 years. And there's a room in Hampton Court which is panelled and was painted with ambergris or doused in it, the wood panelling. <laughs> this room was Elizabeth I's favourite room and favourite scent, and you could still go in Hampton Court now and smell the ambergris. What does ambergris smell like? Room. I have no idea what it smells like. Oh, it's, sort, it's like uh, suntan skin, salt, sea air. It has a, a velvety smell. It also, the important thing to remember is that it's a fixative in scent, and it also makes seemingly innocent floral perfume smell much more mysterious once it is added. Wow, everybody needs some ambergris in their lives. They certainly do. <laughs> it's a real life enhancer. I love talking to travelers who are into something I'm not into and that can open the door to a whole other dimension of travel. Now, do different countries have a smell when you travel to India or Japan or France? Do you think of a particular smell? Originally, the book was going to be called The Geography of Scent, but then I actually realized that every country or part of the world is psychogeographical. And if you were to put me blindfold, say, in the middle of India or somewhere in India, I would know I was in India because I would smell the beady smoke, which is these funny little cigarettes they smoke. Yeah, so you have these personal associations, these memories. Yes. So scents are literally souvenirs. They're literally souvenirs, and the jasmine of India and garlands of tuberose, and I'd know instantly I was in India just by smelling. Now, Proust wrote, each hour of our lives is stored in a smell or a taste. Do you believe that? This is absolutely true. More than any photograph or piece of music, scent mm. is much, much stronger. It can bring back a certain moment in your life with hallucinatory vividness. I love that. And you, you stumble, even if you're not tuned into that, the traveler stumbles onto that. You, you, you have this uh, deja vu feeling that comes to you through the sense of smell. Completely. But when I read your book, I mean, I was just marveling at your ability to describe scents. And I thought, I'm pretty crude in this regard. Are some more blessed with an ability to appreciate the fine differences of smells than others? Or is it something that we all have uh, buried in us? Well, I think perfume and smell is deeply entrenched into our psyche, but we're not always aware of it. And I certainly, at the beginning of the book, found it a real struggle to compare smells with other things or to be able to describe a smell without using too many metaphors or overusing certain words like aromatic or right. spicy or overwhelming and so on. So I had to really watch out for that. Celia Littleton was raised with an appreciation for the subtle fragrances that graced her childhood home in Tuscany. Her desire to concoct her ideal personal scent took her around the world to visit places that cultivate particularly sought-after fragrances and to understand their customs. She writes about her quest for sourcing the ingredients for her bespoke perfume formula in her book, The Scent Trail. Celia, let's talk a little bit about the physiology of all this. Uh, according to your book, you can recognize your nose, my nose, can recognize 500,000 different odors. This is true. And, and this skill doesn't fade away with age. I mean, when you get older, you can still smell with the same uh, distinction that a younger person can. Exactly. I mean, our sense of smell 
never fails us. Um, it gets stronger, in fact, as we get older, unlike other things like uh, sight. Now, one of the most fascinating experiences for me, I was in Paris on the Champs-Élysées, I think the flagship outlet of the Sephora store, you know, the big perfume chain, and they had this wheel of scents, this wheel of smells, and a woman was there, and you could make your own perfume, and I didn't realize, but it was like a color chart. It went from barnyard to lavender. I don't know what the extremes are, but there's actually a, a sort of a scientific arithmetic kind of progression of smells from cow pie to lavender blossom. Or, or can you tell us a little bit about that? A lot of the terminology of perfume is compared to the terminology of music and of colors. For instance, jasmine, its color equivalent is a, a deep, deep red, even though jasmine is white. And the ambergris represented my favorite gem, which is a sapphire. And there's this harmonicity. You, you mentioned in your book the language of music is like the language of perfume. There's an olfactory It certainly harmonicity. is. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, a good perfume uh, will be like a perfect, beautifully played piano concerto, in that all the notes in the perfume float along with each other and are perfectly balanced, as the notes in music would be. In music, you've got harmonicity. Uh, a G is half the vibrations of a C, so it goes together well because every two vibrations, they coincide. That's a very clever comparison. It's exactly like that. It's almost like if you've got two files of mimosa, that balances out the quite strong, carnal smell of an Indian's uh, jasmine. So the marriage can be a minimizing of the uh, dissonance in the harmony. If it's in the harmonic overtone series, as far as your nose is concerned, those two scents go together well. Exactly. I mean, a good scent should never shout at you. It should be subtle. In the wake of somebody leaving, you'll smell a, a slight cloud wow, of their this scent is very interesting. and their presence. Now it's, I'm relating to it. So a C and a G are in harmony beautifully. A C and an F sharp are what they call the devil's interval because it's they sound the so ugly together. Yeah. If you ever notice when you go into what I call the duty-free zone of oh, perfume, yes, I feel it's like the Muzak of perfume that... It makes you sneeze, that you have an instant reaction it's mud. to a lot of these overhyped celebrity perfumes. They are, I find they do shout at you. There's a long history of uh, perfume. Of course, uh, the scent can attract a mate. It can help you flirt. It can arouse people. It can protect you. It can wake you up. It can enhance your mind. Talk about some of the historic purposes of perfume. Oh, well, um, there are lots and still indeed survive, like um, the small Yemeni children had a little bunch of myrrh pinned to their clothes because the smell of the myrrh kept the flies away from them. And also the superstitious thing was that they believed it kept the evil spirits away from their children. Moroccan aristocrats actually, as a ritual, a daily ritual for breakfast, they had put a bit of musk in their hot milk, so that for the rest of the day, they will literally sweat out the scent of musk. The scent has many healing properties. It's both sacred and profane. It's part of the daily lives of many cultures. For instance, in Turkey, when you get on the bus, you're sprayed with orange water or rose water. Imagine getting on the bus here and going through Central Park and being sprayed with 
uh, rose water. You know, I, I, I love that ritual. Now that you mention it, that's one of the delights of traveling on a bus in Turkey. Delights, is, and, exactly. And the tourists kind of go, yeah, 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 and they put out their hands. But you realize this is an elegance that this culture has because they appreciate the scent of that rose water. Exactly, and it's a very fragile tradition, and it needs to be um, maintained. And the other thing as well in Turkey is that you have this wonderful Turkish delight, which is suffused and flavoured with rose and rose water. Now, smells are the cultural thing. Do some cultures just appreciate smells and use smells more than others? I, I certainly think so, especially, for instance, in India, where we might buy the daily paper um, Indians, you know, even truck drivers will buy a garland of jasmine to either put round their wing mirrors or round their wrists, partly to keep rather awful smells, say of open sewers and so on that you have in India, to keep the smell of that at bay. They could just smell a sprig of their jasmine. So it's much part of their daily life and ritual. In Morocco, when you go to a leather souk, there's a lot of smell of bad leather uh, being dyed and, and rotting or whatever, and they give you a sprig of mint to put under your nose as you tour it. Exactly. And in fact, I mean, modern perfumery sprung up in grass because it was originally tanneries for leather, and they realized that they had to disguise the smell of urine, which softens the oh, leather that's why the perfume. that's why the leather souk smells so bad, is the leather is being softened in urine. Exactly. Tubs of urine, so give me the mint. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about scents and perfumes all around the world. We're joined by Celia Littleton. She's written a fascinating book called The Scent Trail, how one woman's quest for the perfect perfume took her all around the world. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Norma Lee's on the phone in New York. Norma Lee, thanks for your call. Um, I, I wondered if Celia had ever been to Iran, particularly the wonderful gardens of Shiraz and the roses, and walked in the in the spice bazaars. Well, that, that's a very um, pertinent question because actually it's one of the places I would love to have gone to. Okay, is uh, Iran or or what was known as Persia? Yes, but uh, I realise that really the world's biggest harvest of roses is actually in Anatolia, in Turkey. So in the end, I chose Turkey so I could actually witness the real harvesting of okay. the rose plantations. But alas, in Iran, what is known as Iran now, they don't have that culture anymore or growing plantations of roses, even though they actually invented the rose scent to put into an, a perfume. But it's somewhere I would, would really love to visit, so it's interesting you brought up Iran. Excellent. Well, you can come with us. We're going soon. <laughs> I'll come. Besides the flowers, there's also the sense of the many uh, spices that one finds in the bazaars, which are fascinating to, to remember, to, to smell and remember. And so if you do come, I would encourage you to... Uh, taste the sense of the bazaars. Oh, I'd absolutely love to come. I'm going to go and choose my pink powder now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Norma Lee, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Celia Littleton. She's a writer based in London who suggests that smells are guardians of the past. Or, as Marcel Proust put it, a nightlight in the bedroom of memory. She's telling us what she discovered along the scent trail which is the title of her memoir. 
And Rachel's on the phone in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Rachel, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. I wanted to let you know about this wonderful little place we came across in Ireland. We were staying in Galway, which is on the west coast of Ireland. And there's an area near there where the glaciers came through and pretty much scraped things right flat down to the granite. And then over time, there were little crevices and whatnot with the ice. And so they've got this uh, lots of little plants with um, unique little flowers uh, that grow in that part of Ireland. And there's a, a little perfumery sort of tucked away, not too far from Galway. And, uh, and they were distilling all of the local plants and herbs and flowers. And it was just... A, a lovely little place. You know, that's a beautiful corner of Ireland. It's called the Burren, B-U-R-R-E-N, and right. it's, it's famous because it's got this unique climate where you've got tropical flowers and flowers from the, the Arctic tundra together sharing the same rocks, and it's a, a, a very rough and wild environment, and it's uh, beautiful to think that they would be uh, making perfume right there. Actually, this little perfumery is uh, run by a friend of mine called Sadie Cowan. And it's almost like I'd like to write a sequel to the book and have Iran and this lovely microclimate of the Burren. One of the odd corners of nature where they can take advantage and and have some beautiful uh, perfumes. Rachel, thanks for your tip. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined with Celia Littleton, who's written a book called The Scent Trail, One Woman's Quest for the Perfect Scent That Took Her Around the World. And after all those thousands of miles and weeks of enjoying the different perfumes of the world, you created your personal scent. Was it a success? What does it do for you? It's an immense success, and it is encapsulated in a bottle like a dejeune. It's like an archive of all those journeys, and it's, it's very layered. And it's still actually even maturing in the lab of creative perfumers in London, where anybody can go and have their own scent made, and it's just next to the Ritz. And it's rather like a vintage wine. It's still maturing. Uh, But I have a little file of it, and I take it wherever I go. And it is reminiscent of all your travel fun. It's completely reminiscent. And I almost thought of calling it reminiscent. But I thought that was just too, too silly in the end. Well, whatever you call it, I think you have created this souvenir for the traveler who's got everything. A perfume that takes you back to the places of wonder you experienced in your travels. Celia Littleton, author of The Scent Trail, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.